My name's Gail and I'm alcoholic. I am wondering how I got here today. And I think I know. By the grace of a loving God and the people in Alcoholics Anonymous praying me into these rooms. And for that, I'm truly grateful. Um, my life has changed, and I have changed. I'm not the same person I used to be. I got a handkerchief because I'm a crier. Um, my sponsor is Nancy D. I have a home group on Tuesday nights at Mount Carmel at the Eastside Center. I was homeless for five years. Nancy said, you're homeless, get a home group. So I have a home group today. And uh, I have the greatest sponsor in the whole wide world, a woman that loved me from the second she set her eyes on me. And uh, for that, I'm truly grateful. I have a lot of, a lot of folks here today that uh, I was sharing with Jim and Mark and, and some other folks earlier today. I said, you know, uh, all the years that I drank and I drugged, I never had that many people in my life that I have today that are here for me. And I'm overwhelmed when I look around the rooms and, and see some wonderful people that have loved me. And guess what? I've learned to love them too. Because when I came in here, I didn't have the ability to do that. Um, we'll go back to the basics, you know. They told me that uh, there's a few things when I met my sponsor. She told me I had to do a couple things, and that was pray in the morning, read the book, go to meetings, and pray at night, and just don't drink. And by the time I made it to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was desperate enough to do the things that were suggested of me. And by the grace of a loving sponsor and a loving God, I have been able to celebrate six years of sobriety as of May, uh, what is this year? <laughs> I sobered up in May 16, 1998. Um, you know, this morning I kept saying, okay, God, you know, come on. Get up with me, come on, carry me through this, you know, and, and uh, he, he has arrived. He's here right now, because uh, I don't feel like I did a few minutes ago. I'm, I'm grateful to be able to be his spokesperson today, because that's the reason why I'm here. And uh, I got that big old ego thing going on, you know, I was chosen to be a speaker. I got to wear a, a blue ribbon, you know, I'm something special, and, and really what I am is... Uh, I'm a spokesperson for God because uh, this is what I have been chosen to do by the grace of God. He says to me, you get out there and you carry the message. And, and my friend Gail told me today that I was a 12-step, you know, that, that that's what my responsibility is. And uh, I am very grateful to be here. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I grew up, Stacy. Stacy remembers me. I graduated from the Women's Recovery Addiction Program in Covington, Kentucky, and uh, I gave her some hell while I was there. She was the, one of the ladies that worked there and tried to drag me out of bed in the morning. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, I am me. <laughs> so anyway, uh, thank you, Stacy. Um, I uh, am supposed to tell in a general way what I used to be like and what happened and what I'm like today. And, 
I've already told you that I'm not the person I used to be. Um, I have four children, ages 16, 17, 25, and 27. And I bring up my children a lot. Uh, I whined for many years because I was a single parent. And if you were a single parent, you'd drink too. And, and if you had to work and take care of all these kids, you'd drink too. And if you had to do what I got to do, you'd drink too. And I used that excuse for probably 15, 20 years of my life. And uh, I got here by running out of excuses, you know. But I grew up in a little family uh, on the east side of town. I'm a river rat, a little town called New Richmond, Ohio. And, you know, when we're growing up in a, a family, uh, God, I love being here. Everybody just looks so damn bright, you know? <laughs> Y'all wore bright colors and stuff, and it's really nice. I like those colors you have on. <laughs> anyway, they told me that I'd start, Sam told me, wait till you start seeing the colors. You know, I, I'm seeing some colors today. It's cool. Anyway, um, I grew up in this little family, and I had a mom, and I had a dad, and I had some brothers, and I had a sister, and I had some good friends growing up in school. And uh, I remember when I was a little girl, Gail, my friend Gail's here today. She's known me all my life. She could probably tell you my lead better than I can. But uh, we used to play jacks, and we did the hula hoop. And uh, I remember the jumping thing where you put it around your ankle and you jump over the ball. And life was good, you know. I was a, a very happy little girl. And uh, I grew up in this family, and uh, things happen in your family, you know. I've learned in Alcoholics, that, uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous that the way you grow up, you feel is pretty normal. You know, I really believe that I had a really normal household, and everybody in it was normal, and my sheets on my bed were clean, and my dad worked every day, and my brother one occasion said he loved me, and my sister was all right, you know. I had a grandma and stuff. I had a grandpa. And uh, I, I had a pretty normal family. We had a dog. And uh, he, I think he bit Gail once. <laughs> he bit Janet. He, he used to bite. That should have told me something. We kept this collie around for like 10 years, man. Everybody'd walk in the door, he'd bite. And, and we'd just keep him, and he'd just bite everybody. But anyway, I don't know where that came from. But uh, I grew up in a really uh, functional, dysfunctional family. And I remember. Uh, I don't know if my dad was alcoholic or not, but uh, I remember going into the bathroom and underneath the sink I'd find that empty bottle, you know, and underneath the car seats I'd find an empty bottle, and I'd find empty bottles of liquor laying around all over the place, you know. So I've learned now that my dad drank every day, you know, but I don't ever remember seeing my dad drunk. He was not a violent man and not a belligerent man, and he worked every day and he took care of the family. My mom used to cook big meals, and she was uh, probably, if we would look at it now, a definite Al-Anon candidate, because uh, she made our beds every day, she vacuumed every day, and our house was spotless, because my mom made sure it was. And I didn't know she was so sick, you know. She was just trying to take care of all of us, and she did a good job with that. Um, never heard a whole lot about uh, God growing up. I do know that... Uh, I attended the Catholic Church, and uh, they spoke in Latin back then, and I used to just get in trouble in church for talking so much, and I never heard a word they said. I, you know, I did a few Hail Marys. I used to go to confession on Saturdays because they told me I had to do that so I could take communion on Sunday. 
So I remember I started lying like really early, you know. I'd, I'd go into confession and say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned, you know. And I was trying to make up some sins. And I used to make up all these sins, you know. And then I'd come out and I had a, I had a, a good reason to be able to go to confession, you know. And that's the way I lived. But I grew up and um, I had a pretty good life. And uh, elementary school was pretty cool, you know. I, I won the... Uh, the Easter egg uh, hat contest. I won the red, white, and blue bicycle contest on the 4th of July. And when I look back on that, I didn't do any of it. You know, my mom did it all. She decorated my hat, decorated my bike. I won it all. I won the Halloween contest, you know, for the be- most beautiful. And every when I was growing up, everybody always used to say, are you Chinese? Are you Japanese? So my mom dressed me up on Halloween like a Japanese woman. So I won, I won the most beautiful. I was embarrassed. <laughs> but my mom did everything for me, you know, and uh, she did everything for all of us. As I grew up, I uh, started junior high school and life was good. Uh, we had a pretty good family thing going on, you know, some incidences happened in my family, but uh, we swept them under the carpet and we kept our mouth shut and we didn't tell anybody. And that's how that went. And uh, we put on a good front. Uh, junior high came, high school came, and uh, knock at the door one night and a police officer standing at the door and he said, you know, I remember him telling my mother, he said, he said, you know, your son won't be coming home anymore. And I'm like, what's up with that? You know, I had a brother that was just about 16 months older than me, so him and I were tight. And then I had my two older brothers and my older sister, so it was like two separate little families. And uh, my brother was killed in a car accident uh, out on US 52 in Point Pleasant, Ohio. And I remember the police officer saying, your brother won't be coming home anymore. And I looked at my brother, Steve, and we started laughing. And it was like, it's funny, you know? And it was that shock of something. I don't know what it was. But I immediately uh, picked up the lying and and, uh, making up stories. I remember I said, here's how we'll deal with this, you know? We'll just tell everybody he went away to college and he's never coming home. So I put my little pink dress on and I went to his funeral and I skipped around and I was having some fun, you know, because I had convinced myself of that lie. So I never, I never suffered any grief or I never suffered any pain of losing a family member until many, many years later. So that was the story of uh, how it began with my lying. I lied to everybody every day all the time. I made up reasons why I was who I was. If you said, wow, I like your dress. I only paid five bucks for it. Well, I paid 25 for it, you know? And if I lied about everything and really didn't have any reason for it, you know? I don't know what I was trying to do. My dad used to say things like, uh, Gail, you're just like a chameleon. And everywhere you go, you know? And it's the truth because everywhere I went, I was just like you. And then I was just like you. And I was just like you. And I thought that was a really good quality about me. But what I learned was I had absolutely no clue who I was. I didn't know what my favorite color was. I didn't know really what I liked to wear. I just did what you did. And you liked me for it. And I appreciated it. So I was probably like the most popular person in school because I hung out with everybody and I loved y'all because I wanted you to love me back. And you did. Junior high came, high school came, you know, and I, I tried out for cheerleading, and I was the cheerleader in the ninth grade and, and in the 10th grade and in the 11th grade and 12th grade, and 
I was a real good cheerleader, you know. I, I wanted to be. I loved school. I loved school. It was fun. And, and I've got some teenagers right now, 16 and 17, that, that don't like school, you know. And I just remember how happy I was at school. My freshman year, age 15, I uh, picked up that first drink, and I picked up that first drug, and I picked up another drink and another drug. And I liked alcohol, and I liked it from the very beginning. It made me feel good, and actually, it made me feel like I fit in. So during the basketball games, you know, and after the basketball games, and we'd drink and we'd party a little bit, no consequences. And then uh, pills started coming into my story. People bring pills to school and be like, okay, whatever that is, I'll swallow it and then ask you what it is. You know, and I can remember my senior year, I tried out for cheerleading. I was passed out like eighth period when they announced who the winners were. So I, I didn't know I was a cheerleader until like that Monday morning. But um, that's how life began for me. And, and I can look back on it now and think about from the day that I picked up that first drink is the day that my life started deteriorating. And it was a long journey. It was a real long journey. And if I would have known then what I was in store for, you know. But anyway, we started this journey and uh, I moved away. It was, uh, these people came from the FBI. Sounds important, don't it? And they came to school and they said, who wants to go work for the FBI? And I said, I do. See, I was always one of those, I will. I'll do it. Who wants their haircut? I do. Who, who wants to do this? I will. And, and I was just one of those people. I'd do anything you want me to do. So they said, my mom and dad never said you got to go to college and graduate four years and become somebody. They said, you got to get a job or something, you know. I think they said that. I didn't hear nothing my mom and dad told me. But anyway, they came and uh, on August the 19th, 1974, uh, my mom and dad drove me to Washington, D.C. and dropped me off at the Ebbett Hotel. And they said, good luck. I'm like, okay. Uh, I'm working for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, you know, and I had a badge and stuff. And I was a clerk, and I made $5,280 a year. For some reason, that sticks in my mind. I have no idea. But think about it, you know. That's what they started me out at, and that was big money, you know. So I worked for this place called the FBI, and, and I'm thinking today, my God, there are a lot of convicts free because of me. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so I had, to, I had to read fingerprints, you know, and I'd be all hung over, and the fingerprint card would be like, uh, okay, he's passing, you know. And they let me have this responsibility, and it was a big responsibility, and I didn't know what the heck I was doing. But I met some people that liked to drink and drug, like me, you know, and that was pretty cool. I had two roommates, and one of them was Diane, and the other one was Linda Horikawa. She was from Ohio, uh, Hawaii. And we moved in together and we started this little residence, you know. And I met the, I met the guys in the FBI that liked to drink and drug. And, and life became that way. Every Friday night, payday, you know, took my $87 and, and we drank and we drugged. And uh, I had this uh, man on the back burner back in Ohio in case I needed him, you know. And, and he was the uh, high school jock from the other high school in uh, Batavia High School, played basketball, good-looking man. 
And I, I had him sitting back there waiting for me just in case I couldn't find anything in the FBI. And uh, it was about two years later in the FBI, my, my friend Diana says, I'm going back to Pennsylvania. It's okay. And Linda says, well, I'm moving back to Ohio, uh, Hawaii. I said, well, then I'm going back to Ohio. See, because I was real immature and I was real scared and I didn't know how to take care of myself. I had absolutely no clue. I really believed, I think, that they were taking care of me. So we all packed up and I moved back to Ohio and uh, it wasn't long after that I found that high school sweetheart again and I knew he still wanted me. He was waiting for me, you know. And uh, we started dating a little bit and uh, next thing you know, I, my mom looks at me one day at the kitchen table and she said, you know, I think you're pregnant. And my mom could have had, she had this like thing about her, you know, she could look at my eyes and tell me, and that's how she told me. And uh, I said, well, I think I might be. So my dad said, you know, you don't have to get married, Gail. You know, we'll, we'll be all right. We'll take care of that baby. And that was 27 years ago. And uh, so I said, oh, no, I'm going to do the right thing. You know, so we, we got married, and, and I had a son, and his, name, his name's Jeremy. He's a good kid, too. He's a good man. And uh, I had Jeremy and this guy named Scott. I'll use his name, Scott. He's an important person now, you know, deadbeat dad, one of those. If you had a deadbeat father, you'd drink too, you know. If you weren't getting child support checks, you'd drink too. I used that for a long time. But anyway, uh, we had this little family, and I, I, I always had these good intentions, like, hmm, I have that little house with the white picket fence, you know, and a husband who loves me and somebody I can love. And see, he never loved me enough, on it. But you know, as I looked at I around in Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't love him too much either, you know. I didn't know how to show him love. And he didn't know how to show me. We were two young people trying to, trying to act like adults. And, and he started not coming home on Fridays, and I started not coming home on Fridays, and we had this little boy, and, and life sucked, really. I mean, uh, drugs became a big part of our story. Alcohol was a big part of my story, and uh, his too, and little boy trying to raise him, and he became two years old and three years old, and I thought, I got a solution. I'm going to have another baby, because I know what that does. That brings the family closer together, and we will survive. See, I didn't have a problem with alcohol or drugs, and neither did he. We just had a problem with communication coming home from work, paying bills, going to work. You know, that was just our problem. Vacuuming, you know, changing diapers. So I had this other child, and I have a beautiful daughter today, and her name is Valerie, and she's 25 years old today. Um, my sobriety date is May of 1998, so it took me a long time to get this thing. And during this time, I have absolutely no idea why I never lost my children. And sometimes I look back and think it would have been better if I would have. Because I drove and drove and drugged and took my kids through pure hell. And for many years I couldn't understand why they were whining about it, you know. I don't have a problem. You got a roof over your head, don't you? You know. So anyway, um, the marriage didn't last. And um, the drinking was getting bigger. The disease was progressing. The marijuana was there. The quaaludes were there. 
The Vicodins were there. If you had two kids, you'd take Valium too. It said take one every seven hours. I took seven every one, because I had dyslexia. (laughs) They called those things mother little helpers. And then I learned later they were called forget-me-nots, because I couldn't remember anything the next day. So I drugged these kids through a little bit of pain, just a little bit of pain, and uh, divorce. My mom and dad had since moved down to Fort Myers, Florida, and they called me up on the phone and they said, Gail, won't you come down here, get a new life, new beginning, new start. And the word new sounded good to me because I always was looking for something new, you know. If I can just do this, or if I just had this, or if I just had that, life will be better. Florida sounded good, the ocean, sand, you know, mom and dad, and they were good people. They lived in a little uh, mobile home down there, and they made some room for me and my kids. Valerie was probably almost a year old, sitting in, sitting in her playpen. She couldn't sit up yet, because I laid her down with her bottle all the time. She got on my nerves, you know. So she laid down in the playpen all the time. When I got her to Florida, my mom knew there was something wrong. So she started sitting my daughter up. And she taught her how to sit up and hold a bottle. She taught her how to eat. And she taught her how to say words. Because she was just shoved in a corner. I had other responsibilities. So I took that geographical change. And I took me with me. And I was the same person. Nothing changed about me. And I went down there and I got me this job. See, I had worked for the FBI. So I had a pretty good resume. I hadn't been arrested or nothing, so it looked good. I could put a suit on and and manipulate my way into a position. So I got a job working in Fort Myers, Florida for a, a judge down there, just being a clerical person. And I felt real good about myself. I knew, I knew now life was going to be good. I was going to be a good mom. I always had good intentions, because I heard somebody say tonight, or last night, or this morning, that we always loved our kids. I was a bar person that sat at the bar and told you how much I love my children, but if they call, don't tell them I'm here. You know, that was me. But I'm telling you, I loved my children. I just didn't know how to stop drinking or drugging. I didn't have a problem. So I moved down to Fort Myers, Florida, and I met him, and he was, uh, he was a lawyer, and he had some money, and he whined and dined to me for a little bit. My dad told me he looked like my father. He said, Gail, he looks old enough to be your dad. I said, no, he doesn't. You know how we just have that delusion? You know, and I just thought he was just, I thought he, he, he cared about me, you know? And we went through a few years down there in Fort Myers, Florida, and he provided me with babysitting service, and he provided me with a lot of alcohol, and he provided me with a lot of drugs. But see, he took me places. He took me to New Orleans and Arizona, and the whole time my life was deteriorating. My kids were spending Friday through Sunday at the babysitter, and then it was Friday through Monday, and then it was Friday through Tuesday. And then when Tuesday came around, I forgot where they were. 
So I'd be running around that low-income apartment house that they let me move in and paid me $8 a month to live there trying to find my kids because I couldn't find them. I remember Valerie got so sick down there one time. I couldn't find her. Anyway, that's how my life was there. I found a drug down there in Fort Myers, Florida, and they called it cocaine. And they told me that if I do cocaine, it'll keep me up. <laughs> and I could drink more. Because I was one of those lightweight drinks, man. I'd, I'd drink a few beers, I'd be like tired. So I just found this other stuff, and there I go. Give me another 12 pack. Give me another shot of whiskey. Give me another shot of this. Give me that tequila. And that, that became my second source, you know. Every time I took that first drink, it led me to places that I never thought I'd ever go. I ended up uh, using a lot of that stuff, because he provided it. And I ended up drinking a lot and drugging a lot. I lost that job at that courthouse. I got a job at a bank, and I lost that job at the bank. And I lost that other job and the other job and the other job. And before you know it, the only priority that I had in my life was drinking and drugging. My son, who was now five years old, was walking my daughter, who was three, to daycare. I remember one day I sent him over to the store in his underwear, and he was totally humiliated. And I said, you go to the store and get a box of cereal and a gallon of milk and bring it back. And that's what he did. And I used to think my life was manageable when we had a loaf of bread and a gallon of milk in the refrigerator. And I used to think my life was manageable when the kids had sheets on the bed. And I used to think my life was manageable if they weren't starving. Because I justified my drug and alcohol use for a long time. Time went on and I couldn't snort that cocaine anymore. And I became an intravenous drug user. Some people call us junkies. That's what I did. I got real sick down there in Fort Myers, Florida, and I needed another drug addict to tell me that. And uh, children's services knocking on my door. I don't have a problem. Got my first DUI down there, so I had my uh, lawyer friend. So I was something, you know. I had a lawyer friend. So he got me out of that DUI. And had a couple little fender benders, too, because when you're drunk, it's hard to drive. I remember I used to do one of these, and if I just could do that, I was fine. You know, you take that hand over your eye, then you see double. So I just used to hold one hand over my eye. And I used to get real poor, because I didn't have no money. So the way I made my money is I'd go into the bar and I'd drink lots of whiskey. And when I did that, I won the wet t-shirt contest. That's how I made some money, you know. I was a wet t-shirt contest person. God, I can see that now. <laughs> Pull my skirt up and I'll win. <laughs> Things have changed. Gravity. Wow. I don't know where that came from either. It's getting too personal. Anyway, uh, I got real sick down there. And this guy said, you know, Gary, you're looking really sick. I said, well, I might be sick, okay. What do you got? <laughs> Let's do something. So anyway, I uh, decided I'd go check in at this uh, um, free clinic. I had a medical card, and they let you do that. They take good care of you. You can go to the dentist, take your kids, see your life's manageable. You got a medical card. 
take your kids to the dentist and you feel good about yourself because they got their checkup. Feel like a good mom. And I used to go to the doctor on occasion. So I went to the doctor and he said, you got hepatitis A, B. I'm like, what's hepatitis A, B? Because I lied. I said, I've never, I don't drink that much and I don't drug that much, so I don't know where I got this. Must have been from working in the restaurant business or something, you know. You get it from germs. So they put me in the hospital because I was really sick. And I stayed there a couple weeks and they found some other uh, other things about me that were wrong too because I became very promiscuous and I was really sick. And I used uh, the abortion clinic for birth control. And I'm not proud of that, but that's what I did. And I, I didn't know how to manage my life. I didn't know how to do anything right, what normal people did. I used to walk past your house and think, I want to live like you. You know, I used to see cars in the driveway and say, I want one someday. I used to see women walking down the street with their children and say, I want to be like her. I just couldn't do it. So I got sick, and they told me I had this hepatitis A, B thing, and I'm like, all right, I can deal with that. So I dealt with that. And one day, I can remember, I was out at this guy's house, and I called my dad, and I said, Dad, this man is offering me the world. And my dad said, it's all according to what your world consists of. I said, well, it consists of me, Jeremy, and Valerie. He said, well, then he's not offering you the world, because where are your kids? Okay. I had a brother, uh, my oldest brother came down to Florida about that time to visit with my mom and dad, and they drugged me over there, because I was embarrassed to see anybody. I was sick. I didn't know I was sick, but I was sick. And I ended up over in my mom's kitchen, and I saw that coffee pot, and I saw that gallon of milk sitting in the middle of the table, and I was thinking to myself, how can I get that coffee cup filled with a cup of coffee and the gallon of milk poured in it so I can just have a cup of coffee? And I couldn't do it because I had this thing called the shakes. <laughs> and finally my brother came over and he uh, helped me out and he gave me a cup of coffee and he said, you're going back to Ohio with me. And I said, okay, I was looking pretty good then. You know, I weighed at least 98 pounds. I got on the Greyhound bus with my two kids and two pillows, and we came back to Ohio. He opened his house to me, and he said, got one rule, no more cocaine. You can drink, and you can smoke pot. But we're not going to tolerate any cocaine in this house. I'm like, okay. Guess what I learned? I learned that when I pick up that first drink, it takes me right back where I started. So anyway, life went on, and I had my son and my daughter up here, and my little boy's getting bigger, and he's getting bigger, and he's getting bigger, and he's five, and he's seven, and he's nine, and he's ten. And, he, and Valerie is four, and five, and six, and eight. And life's still doing the same deal to me. If you were a single parent, you'd drink too. If you had to do what I got to do, you'd drink too. If you had my nerves, you'd take Valium too. You know, if you got an achy shoulder, you'd probably do some Vicodin. I did it all whenever I could, however I could. 
I started my first uh, series of treatment. I can't remember. I'm not one of those good people that come up and tell you dates because I don't know them. But it was somewhere in my life. <laughs> and I went into my first treatment center and uh, I did that 30-day thing and there was some people in there that didn't have babysitters. And there was a man in there who couldn't read. So I showed him how to read. And I babysat for your kids when you went to the meetings. And then I went to bed and I got my 30-day coin and I left. I heard him say something about sponsorship, big book, you know, some meetings and, okay. I did the 30-day. Came back out. I was at the uh, East Fork Lake one time. My kids were now seven. I was living in Mobile Home Park. I had a 1974 Maverick that every time you had to start it, you had to do it with the screwdriver, lift the hood up. If you had a car like that, you'd drink too. I had an excuse for everything. But anyway, uh, I had this little car and I went to uh, the beach one day, East Fork Lake, later to become my home. Um, went there sitting on the beach one day, it was May of some year, don't remember. Met a man, married him in July, two months. See, I was tired of raising those kids all by myself, you know, I was tired of it. So I met this man, soon to find out he was my cousin. <laughs> Married him. Yeah. I tell my girls, uh, you're full bred, you know. <laughs> Ain't nothing mixed up about you. We all come from the same line. <laughs> True. They got the same, same great great grandparents on both sides. We go to the family reunion, we're the only ones there, you know? That's, wow. I was wondering why every time I went somewhere with my ex-husband, everybody say, he looks like your brother. <laughs> really? <laughs> we quit saying that. We swept that underneath the carpet, you know? My daughter's 16 today, she, or this year, and she told me it's the first time she ever knew that her uh, dad was her uncle, cousin, slash something, you know? We ain't figured it out yet, but we will. We might not. <laughs> Who knows? But anyway, li life's good, you know. And uh, anyway, uh, I got these two little girls, you know, and I married this man with these beautiful, 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 beautiful daughters. Linda knows my daughters. She's had some experience with them. Um, beautiful girls. Love them. I forgot that I had really drugged these two little girls through hell, too. I, uh, my life was a spiral, you know, all the way down. The minute you get down, you get up, you get down, you get up. I divorced him. He divorced me. It was mutual. He worked third shift. I worked first. Let's get a divorce, you know. I don't see you. So we divorced, and I had a little house, disease progressing, drinking, drugging. Didn't do any of that other stuff, though. Remember, I wasn't allowed to. Got a uh, foreclosure, got me a house. My brother, my brother uh, got me an apartment, we got evicted. This, I'm going backwards now. When I lived with my brother, I got me an apartment, got evicted. Got me another apartment, got evicted. Got married, got a house. Got a divorce, got a foreclosure. Lost that house. Got my 401k from a company I used to work for. Spent it in five days. You know where it took me. I was getting sick. Went into another treatment center. Did a 30-day. Got my coin, babysat the kids, 
Heard, heard something about a big book, sponsorship. Life was bad, and uh, I got me another apartment. Moved in with a man who had four kids. We had eight now. Had a van that said eight is enough. Remember Doug? Doug. He was a good man. I owe him an amends. I haven't seen him yet. He ran from me, buddy. <laughs> I uh, was a tornado running through people's lives. Sometimes I feel like I still am, you know? I ain't that good yet, but I'm a lot better. Um, four kids back into the apartment, lost the house, evicted, lost the job, evicted, treatment center, 30 day, 60 day, 90 day, a lot of treatment. I, I, it's funny because I look back on it now, treatment became a, a solution. Creditors, eviction notices, where are you going to go? Treatment, I got a problem. I got a problem, maybe they can help me. I remember uh, being in treatment one time and uh, I said, I can't believe my mom's not bringing me clean clothes. And my counselor said, why would your mom bring you anything, you know? You don't deserve anything. All of a sudden we get sick and we get in treatment, we expect everybody to come take care of us. You know, we expect that. Where's my quarters for the phone calls? I still smoke, don't you know? Where's my cigarettes? Always felt like people owed me something. Because if you had my life. But anyway, uh, life went on and there was a summertime when I ran out of references. And I ran out of uh, application information. I ran out of deposits, and I ran out of family members. Since that time, uh, I forgot a little story about uh, my brother that was real close to me, the one that was like 17 months after me. He was killed in a car accident by a drunk driver, and I swore to God I would never do that, you know. So by that time, I had lost two brothers, two members of my family, and I'm like, if you had to go through that, you'd drink too. So that was another excuse. But it was a summertime and we had nowhere else to go and no more, uh, nobody to take us in, you know. Nobody cared anymore. So we pitched a tent over at East Fork Lake and we lived over there. And I told my kids, we're camping. We're just going camping. And they were fine for the first two weeks and the first three weeks. And then we had to move from loop to loop because you only got to stay there two weeks and then you had to move to another loop. So our address was Loop C, East Fork. And I, I tell you, talking about insanity of this disease, I had a living room, a dining room, I had a refrigerator. I had it all right there at East Fork Lake, buddy. I had no problem. I didn't have a drinking problem. What are you talking about? Broke my ankle over there, so the Vicodins helped, you know. So we lived over there at East Fork Lake, and that following year, we lived at the homeless shelter. And I can remember uh, the counselor there, the lady that ran the homeless shelter, she said, how does it make you feel to know your kids are so happy to be here? I'm like, I don't know. You think they're happy to be at the homeless shelter? But they were, because they had a bed, and 
They had meals. They had a roof. They had things that I didn't know how to provide them with anymore. My disease uh, had totally absorbed me. In and out of treatment, three months, nine months, or excuse me, three months, 90 days, two months, six months, saved my life. I remember that one. I uh, ended up um, losing everybody that ever cared about me. My brother-in-law was a wonderful man, and he said, I got a house over in Dayton, Kentucky that you can rent, and I get your child support check every week because if I don't get it straight to me, I know you're not going to pay the rent. So he allowed me to uh, move into this house over in Dayton, Kentucky. My oldest children, my son, uh, I got to remember this little thing too because it plays an important part. My son was growing up and he was 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 17, 18, hair under his armpits. He was a man. And I'm still doing the same thing that I used to do. I moved into this house over at uh, Dayton, Kentucky, and I had to work for a living. I didn't have a car because I had had my fourth DUI and had totaled that station wagon that my mom gave me when my dad passed away to take care of, and I didn't take care of it. I totaled it, so I moved uh, over on the bus line. I got a job working at a hotel called the Cincinnati Hotel. I felt important there. I was 98 pounds, and I moved into this little house with my daughters, and they spent a lot of time at the babysitters. What I look back and see what happened is my life started doing the same thing it did again. I was going through another set of kids, because I had already destroyed the life of the two older ones, and now I was working on the life of two more. And that's exactly what I was doing. I moved into that house and I had to catch that bus. And you have to be there at six o'clock in the morning because I served breakfast. Long walk down that hill, drop those girls off at the babysitter in the morning, walk down the bottom of the hill, go into this Ohio station. I needed something to keep me up, so I bought those little white things. And I had those little mini white things. And I started out with about five or six or seven or eight or nine or 10 or 20 or 30. And before you knew it, I was doing about 100 of them a day. I couldn't poop, <laughs> you know? I could not pee, and my body was dying. Like Billy said today, uh, what was most important to me was it wasn't about the physical death that I was experiencing. It was about the spiritual pain that I was going through. I couldn't look at myself in the mirror anymore, and I couldn't answer the phone. I couldn't answer my door. I couldn't pay my bills. I couldn't listen to my mother on the other end of the phone. I couldn't accept help from my sister anymore because I didn't deserve it, and I was just dying. I uh, couldn't make it up that hill after I got off work at 2.30 in the afternoon. So I had some friends over there at Smitty's Bar, and they'd take me up the hill. That's all I had to do was get off the bus and go to Smitty's. And I can remember by this time in my life, the only way that I could light a cigarette was to go into the bathroom 
It was like premeditated. I had to plan it from the time I got on the way to the bus. And I uh, would think about what I got to do when I get there. And I'd go in the bathroom and I'd light that first cigarette like that because I didn't want you to see me shake so bad. So I'd come out of the bathroom with that cigarette in my hand and my Budweiser was sitting there and I'd take that drink of Budweiser and be like, I'm okay now. Give me another Budweiser. And my kids call, don't tell them I'm here. Four o'clock, kids call, don't tell them I'm here. Call that babysitter and tell them I'm going to be late. Seven o'clock, oh, there he is. Hmm, there's my man. Something to keep me up. Let's do it. Twelve o'clock, one o'clock, oh, I need some volume. Bring me down. More medicine I took, the sicker I got. That's what it says in the big book. And that's what I did. So I'd start that day over about 4.30 in the morning, drag those kids out of bed, throw them off the babysitter, get, do those hundred things, take that bus ride, drink that beer, do those volumes, vicious circle. When I was down in Fort Myers, Florida, I spent a lot of time in the bathroom telling my kids I'd be out in a minute. I'll be out in a minute. They grew up knocking on my bathroom door because my sickness got so bad that I couldn't get out of the bathroom. And when I moved over in Dayton, Kentucky, I found myself sitting on the, in the bathroom with my two little girls, knocking on the door, and I said, I'll be out in a minute, 20 years later. Every treatment center I'd ever been, they told me about this hepatitis C I had, and I lied. I knew I had hepatitis C, you know. Don't bug me about that, I know I got it. Treatment one, treatment two, treatment three, y'all been telling me I got it, I've had it for 20 years. I know I have that. So anyway, uh, I'm sitting in that bathroom one day and I'm looking at myself and that uh, drug of choice, so to speak, came back to me. I'm sitting in the bathroom and I'm doing the same thing I used to do. And I became that junkie one more time. And I looked at my kids and I couldn't open the door. And I called that ex-husband, that resentment I had, and I said, I need some help. And he said, I'll be right over. I had chicken wings in the refrigerator, so my life was manageable. I had tip money every day, so they ate. You know, I had money to pay a babysitter, too. My life was manageable. But at this point in time, something happened to me that day. I knew I was dying. I knew I was spiritually dying. I heard a lady in a lead say the other night that we have a spiritual illness, and the only solution is a spiritual solution. And I was spiritually bankrupt and spiritually dead. And I called him, and he came over and got me, and he took me over to St. Luke Hospital. And I was in that psych ward, and I loved it. I had a friend named Patty. She rocked all the time. And I wanted to rock like Patty, you know? And they gave me the medication. I was walking and bouncing off the walls, and I knew I had, was right where I needed to be. And I remember calling my mom, and she said, Gail, you need to get out of there. I said, no, I think it's all right. Well, about three days later, you know, they handed me my bag of Klonopin and my Valium, and they said, you need to go home now. So okay. So they gave me my medication. See, I didn't have a problem with alcohol or drugs at that time. They didn't know I did anyway, and I manipulated my way right out of there. And I went home, and three days later, I'm back in the bathroom saying, I'll be out in a minute. Kids knocking on the door. So I called my ex-husband again, and uh, he came and got me, took me back to that psych ward, and that's where my journey of recovery began that day.
May 16, 1998. Threw the Kalanapins out the window, don't know why. Threw the volume out the window, don't know why. He took me to a place called the Women's Recovery Addiction Program, the Rap House. Got some rap girls here, yeah. Rap House saved my life. I went in there and uh, two weeks after I was there, somebody said, Gail, do you know you got two different shoes on? I looked down at my feet and I did. And they thought I had one leg shorter than the other. The whole time I was there, I was like, <laughs> crazy. I phased up, phased up in rap, and I had these wonderful people that loved me. And uh, they told me some stories about my first two weeks there. I don't know, I don't remember too many, but they said I did dishes and stuff like that. No, I don't remember too much of that. But they told me I had to do this thing called the lifeline. And it's really, really a wonderful story because uh, God is very good and very powerful. And what he did that day is uh, he came into my life and he intervened into my disease and he said, I'm tired of messing around with you, girl. <laughs> and he, I was like a, wa a wet washcloth, just totally drained of everything, and they just threw me in there. And he said, I'm going to save your life whether you want to be saved or not. And they said, you got to write a lifeline. And I said, well, where do I begin? They said, at the beginning. And I said, my name is Gloria Gail Gregor. I was born May 3rd, 1956. This is the story of my life. And I wrote that story down, and I wrote everything that ever happened to me in my life, and I wrote everything that ever happened to you. And I never left anything out. And it was my turn to read that story in group that day. I had probably seven or eight or 10 or 12 pages, I don't really know. And there was a bunch of women that were in that group, and uh, Miss Shirley was over here, and she was a very spiritual woman, and I needed her in my life. And I had another lady over here, Miss Carol, and she was there to help me too, and she put her hand on my shoulder. She said, it's your turn to read. So I started reading this lifeline thing. And I started reading it, and I started reading it, and I started reading it. And I looked up in the room, and there wasn't anybody there anymore. All those women had left. And Miss Shirley was over here praying, and Miss Carol was over here. And, and I stood up, and I said, are my feet on the ground? And that's real they weren't. <laughs> That's called a spiritual experience. <laughs> and my feet were not on the ground. And from that moment on, I felt like a featherweight. And God had taken every bit of the garbage and the guilt and the shame that I had experienced and removed it. And he said to me, do you want to live or do you want to die? And I wanted to live. My son came to see me about four months into sobriety, and he's standing out on the steps, and he's looking at me, giving me some eye contact. So I hadn't looked at my children in five or six years. I couldn't. I stole from them. I cheated them. I hurt them. I couldn't look at them. That day, I turned around, and I looked at my son, and I said, what are you looking at? And he said, you look so awake. And I said to Nancy, I said, what did he mean by that? She said, you've been sleeping for 25 years. See, he seen something in me that was new and fresh and a beginning. That was in May of 1998. I got to go to my daughter's high school graduation that same month. She graduated at age 18. 
my son went. My two daughters went with me. This lady kept coming in on Mondays, and I was desperate. Some people say, you got to be real picky about your sponsor. Make sure you got something in common with her. Make sure you like her. You know, be picky. Well, when I got here, God knew not to let me think, you know, because <laughs> I'd have picked the wrong daggone person. There's a lady that's here to, today. Her name's Nancy D. She's my sponsor. She walked in uh, that Monday night, and I was sitting on the steps, and I asked her to be my sponsor, and she's been my sponsor ever since. I've never had anybody love me like she loves me. I've never loved anybody like I love her. That's the gift of this program. So I went through that treatment center and I got my graduation thing. And I was feeling good and life was good. I said, what do I do now? Nancy says, you, you stay close to the rap house. So I stayed close to the rap house. I got me an apartment right down the street on 19th and Madison, somewhere down there. And it was way too expensive. <laughs> you know, it was crazy. First of all, I had to get a job because I had phased up phase three. It's like, I got to get a job. And I'm not sure if Nancy and Tom remember this, but they were taken to a meeting. I'm sitting in the back seat of their car, and Nancy, I said, where am I going to work? I don't want to take the bus line because I don't want to have to get up at 530 and go to work because i got to be at work at 8 o'clock. She says, well, work right there. And that's a place called Rocky Chevrolet on um, Madison Avenue in Covington, Kentucky. I said, okay. So the next day I walked in there because I could walk there from the rap house. And I walked in there and I said, are you hiring anybody? Didn't tell them I was in the rap house. You know. And they said, well, no, we don't really have any openings here for any clerical positions or anything like that. But you might sell cars. Said, I've never sold cars before, but I'll give it a try. So see, the reason why I took that job, first of all, was a job. I could walk to it. And second of all, they paid you a, a weekly check whether you sold anything or not. And then after you started selling, they take it back from you. It's like, okay, that's steady money, you know. So, so I went in, I got that job selling cars at Rocky Chevrolet, and uh, I started working the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I started praying, I started beginning to live. I even, uh, Nancy told me, I said to her one time, I said, do I dress up when I go to meetings? And she said, yeah, you do. You show people that the program works. See, when I met Nancy, she had her fingernails painted, her hair done, she looked nice, and I didn't. And she taught me how to look good. She taught me, she taught me the things that I'm supposed to do to show people that this program does work. And that's what I've done. I followed her, and I've watched her. And she's a perfect example of Alcoholics Anonymous. She sponsors a few people that I truly love. I love Linda. She gives me a hard time, though, you know. Does she give anybody else a hard time? <laughs> you? Okay. So anyway, uh, I started working at this Rocky Chevrolet place, and next thing you know, you know, I'm, uh, my, my ex-husband had my two daughters, and next thing you know, I started setting a little goal. I want my girls back living in the same home with me. So there was a job opening at a place called Joseph Chevrolet over on Montgomery Avenue, and the deal was you get a car. I'm like, okay, I'll take that job. So I got a demo, you know. So here I am cruising around, you know, like a year of sobriety, driving a brand new car, you know, got my girls back, got me a little apartment over in somewhere, uh, up in the bluffs, way too expensive, couldn't afford it, you know, had 
people to help me, man. Mike, Mike has always been a wonderful help in my sobriety. I don't know what I've done without him. But um, I knew this was too expensive, so I moved back. My goal was to get back over on the east side of town. So I did that, and I got me a little apartment. And I remember one day I was working at Joseph Chevrolet, and I was pretty daggone good at what I did. And the only reason I was pretty good at what I did is because I was practicing the principle of Alcoholics Anonymous in all my affairs, and I was getting on my knees, and I was praying, and I wasn't drinking, and I was working the steps, and I was doing the best to my ability. And I did not want to live like I had lived. So all of a sudden, this girl comes in. She goes, you know, they're hiring over at this place called Coleraine RV over on Coleraine Avenue in Cincinnati. I said, okay, what do they do over there? And she said, they sell campers. So I said, okay. So I went over there for this job interview, and they had never had a woman salesperson over there. And that was uh, five years ago. I started in October, and I'm still there today. And I went in and interviewed with the two men, and, and they said, uh, have you had, ever had any experience camping? <laughs> and you know, I am an expert at camping. I can cook anything on a campfire. I love to camp. And I told them I had plenty of experience in camping, and, and they hired me. And uh, the first year I was there working for Coleraine RV, uh, I learned early on Alcoholics Anonymous first, God first, AA. Anything you put in front of AA, you're going to lose anyway. Okay? I want to live. I don't want to die. Keep it simple. So I started working at this place called Coleraine RV, and I started selling campers. My second year there, I was doing pretty good. Third year there, I was top salesperson, top saleswoman. Third year there, top saleswoman. Fourth year there, top saleswoman. And you know, the reason why I share that is because it has nothing to do with me. Because if I still were the same person I was when I came into these rooms, I wouldn't be working at Coleraine RV. I wouldn't be the mother I am. I wouldn't be the sister I am. I wouldn't be the daughter I am. It's only by the grace of a loving God, and I'll call it synonymous, is why I'm here today. So I have a great job. I got that house I dreamed of having. I don't sit in bars anymore. I changed my music. I love God. I pray. I try to be useful to him and to others. About a year ago, I was sitting in a meeting saying, wait a minute, Gail, you're going around bragging about what Gail, God's done for you. It's time to do something for God. So that's what I try to do today. It's all about what can I do for him. And what really happens is when I do something for God, I'm usually doing something for somebody else. And that's pretty cool. And at night, Dick Hedger taught me this one. He said, get on your knees and ask God to treat you tomorrow like everybody treated, like you treated everyone today. That's deep. Because some days we don't treat everybody right. So I try minute by minute, hour by hour, step by step, to treat everybody like God will treat me tomorrow. And I don't always do it right. I'll tell you what, I got to walk my daughter down the aisle last year for her wedding, and I got to, I got to financially pay for her to have the most beautiful Cinderella wedding that you have ever seen. And guess what else I got? My son walked down with me. 
and my daughters were the junior bridesmaid and the bridesmaid. And another gift that I got in sobriety is I get to set an example for my young teenagers who are working on their lead, you know. Another gift I got in sobriety is I went to that liver specialist, and he said, we're going to do a biopsy, and we're going to start you on that interferon stuff. I knew I had hepatitis C. And he brought me back in about six weeks later, and he said, sit down. And I sat down, and he said, this, this, you're not the first person this has happened to, and you probably won't be the last, but you don't have any signs of have hepatitis C anymore. Well, I don't trust God. So I said, I want a second opinion, because I didn't trust God. And see, God removed that from me. Why? So I could be here today to carry the message. So I can tell you that Alcoholics Anonymous works. So I can carry the message from God to you, through me to you, to tell you that he's taught me how to love to tell you that I want to be loved, to tell you thank you for letting me be who I am, and, and thanking God for letting me accept you for who you are. I've never had so much joy in all my life. Tom Dorgan. <laughs> Tom D. said, just sit down, because you're going to go on a journey of a lifetime. And he told me that about four years ago. And now I know what he meant. And guess what else they tell me? It's only just begun. Whoa. Whoa. So, you know, I get to stack around here tonight. I get to look at these colors, the new pair of glasses. I get to eat good food. I get to love good people. I get to stay sober one more day only by the grace of a loving God and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I thank you for listening to me, and I thank you especially for asking me to be here. And I really, really, really love my life today. Thank you.